This is Dr. Peterson in one of my short lecture series for uh, Introduction to Psychology. And uh, what we've been talking about so far is uh, we talked about Sigmund Freud's unconscious theory. And we talked about the behaviorist movement, which was kind of in response to uh, Freud's theory and other theories because they become less scientific. And what the behaviorist movement wanted to do was bring the idea that psychology is a science and so they wanted to use more naturalistic methods in order to investigate human behavior so what they decided is is that psychology should only be a science of behavior those things that we could directly observe but uh, probably one of the biggest criticisms of both behaviorism and Freudian theory is they're both what we call deterministic types of philosophies or theories meaning that your behavior isn't determined by your decisions at the time your behaviors are predetermined in Freudian terms by unconscious desires your id and your ego and those types of things so you're not in control of your behaviors you're not making those decisions those decisions are being made on an unconscious level on the behaviorist level, you're not in control of your behaviors. Your behaviors are shaped by previous experiences. And so in both of those models, they're highly deterministic. And so what is it that, so that takes out this element we call human motivation. What is human motivation then? Why are we if we're such deterministic individuals, what makes a human human? Why are we motivated to become better individuals? Why are we motivated to be here? Is if all we need to do is survive, why do we try to become better than we were yesterday? And those types of things. And uh, in the 1950s and whatnot, uh, a big philosophical movement was uh, going across the United States called the existential movement. And uh, if you've ever heard of someone going through an existential crisis, for example, this is a good example of that. Is an existential crisis is when someone has a, a close death in their life or they have a a uh, sudden uh, diagnosis of cancer and they they face their own mortality and they question what the purpose of life is and those types of things and in that existential crisis they start to question what is existence and in existentialism the idea is is that uh, life is meaningless uh, we are here in this random universe, in these random things. And so the reason why uh, we have structures such as school, uh, uh, religion, societies, and uh, um, uh, 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 the like is to make sense and give purpose out of a purposeless world. That's kind of a bleak uh, 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 way to think about existence, but that's the existential explanation of why we do what we do. But from there grew what is called a humanistic uh, movement. Okay, And within this humanistic psychology that we're going to call it, um, there's one basis that came from existentialism that is important to keep, and that's the notion of free will. And so... 
from existentialism, this idea to make a society, you have to be able to freely choose uh, what you're going to do. And so this is an important thing. Humanistic psychology states that you have to have the freedom to choose from one day to next what your behaviors are going to do. So that's going to cross out behaviorism and that you're not bound by uh, desires of, of sex and aggression and all those things as, as the uh, uh, Freudians would have believed. So this is an important point, a breaking point. So what is motivation though? And so we're going to look at two important people in the field of uh, humanistic psychology and who really kind of started it. Uh, Abraham Maslow and Carl Rogers and um, if you've done anything with uh, uh, human resources or in, if you worked in mental health or stuff you probably have heard of Abraham Maslow's and what's called uh, his, his uh, uh, pyramid of needs okay and it looks something like this is uh, he, he, he argues that human beings have basic needs okay and at the top of this basic needs, he's going to say that this is an actualized person. This is a, the, 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 the most actualized, the superior of what a human potential can be. Okay. Um, but there's basic needs that have to be fulfilled in order for someone to reach their total human potential. At the base, and if you think about this, so that you have to have a base of a pyramid, is our basic physiological needs. Okay, and so this is uh, food, water, shelter. He also argued sex uh, fits on in that category. So we have to have those basic physiological needs met. Uh, then we have to have our safety needs met, meaning we have to feel safe where we're at. Okay, and so uh, those are important. And then after that, we have to have our relationship needs met. This is friendships. This is family. This is intimate relationships. This is uh, all of those things. And then we have to have our esteem uh, needs met, our self-esteem, our psychological well-being, uh, you know, uh, anxiety issues, no depression issues. We have to focus on all of these things in order to have, in, and we have to have all of these in place to reach our complete human potential to become this thing we call actualized. Um, now, there, there is some precedence for this, okay? Uh, if we look at businesses, for example, they've taken this model and they've looked at this and we have found that uh, businesses that have all of these elements um, have high-performing organizations. So organizations that uh, provide a livable wage, for example, provide, you know, uh, basic needs while employees are at work, uh, access to food, water, those types of things. Uh, in work that provides a place where you feel, you feel safe, there's security. The ability to interact with coworkers so you're not closed off from other people. And you have the ability for self-growth, professional development. We find that those are high-achieving organizations. So if you're going into business, 
this is the kind of organization you'd want to um, establish in the field of social work, in the field of uh, uh, counseling and therapy. This is also what you assess when you have a client. You, you have a client come in and, and these are the things that you assess. Are they, do they have housing? Do they have a job? Um, what is their work life? Are they safe where they're at? Is there violence in the home? Uh, what is their neighborhood like? Uh, do they have stable relationships? Do they have consistent relationships? Do they have social support? Where are they psychologically, emotionally? Do they have symptoms of depression, anxiety, or other psychological disorders? And so these are all areas you would assess. So this model has been used quite a bit, um, but in most cases it's more like a square than it is a pyramid because all of these are taken at equal uh, amounts, but that's, that's uh, besides the point. Um, and we'll see throughout the course which is more important because uh, when we get to social psychology, we might want to put relationships down here uh, because we find that if you take human relationships out, human beings start stop to thrive as much as you they would if you stop feeding or drink or <laughs> feeding or they, they uh, uh, dr drinking thirst uh, or shelter and so uh, is what's more important but that's that's beyond the point the other thing about this model is is that in order to be an actualized person according to Maslow we have to have all of these in place all at once in order to be able to focus on becoming a full person and I want you to think about this how often do we have all of these in place in one single moment in one single time you know we might you know so we get a house uh, we feel safe let's say we get married uh, we get a good job and we work hard but then let's say uh, our car gets broken into um, we lose our job uh, maybe we get divorced and so at any one time you know these these might uh, fail to adjust and, and whatnot and indeed uh, most research shows that less than about 10 percent of a population ever has these in place to become an actualized person and indeed um, the list of quote-unquote actualized people is very small and only includes people like Martin Luther King and uh, Dalai Lama and a few other individuals who actually achieved this. But in a more practical level, uh, I want to use Carl Rogers' terms for what is an actual actualized person because I, I, I like his terminology because he provides a little bit more definition than what Maslow provided. Uh, what Rogers argued is that we have really kind of two selves, and he, he used a couple different terms, and I'm just going to use uh, terminology that I think is, is, is uh, easy to understand here, is that we have kind of basically two selves. We have a real self, which I believe he called the organic self, and we have an imagined self. The real self is who you are watching this video existing. It is, it is everything you bring to this. It's, who, it's, it's nothing that you're not, okay? Your imagined self is the person you think you should be. 
Yeah, so if you think you should be the straight-A student or, or the greatest mom or the greatest dad or the greatest son or the greatest whatever it may be, that's, that's the imagined self, okay? Now, Carl Rogers was a clinician, and this is uh, something that he uh, uh, aspired to, and something you should know about humanistic theory and what kind of makes it unique in approaches is what Rogers believed is that uh, for a therapist and for, for, for psychology, uh, for any given problem a person faces, the individual knows the answer. The in, it, it, it lies within the person. It exists. But what they need is a space, an environment that is there where that answer can be accessed by the individual, okay? Um, what that person needs to receive from a person is something he called unconditional positive regard, okay? Um, but the question is, is to give this, what do we need to do? Okay, what do we have to do as a person? Well, we have to become self-actualized according to Carl Rogers. But how do we do that? And this is where we come back to the real self and the imagined self. Okay. So, what Rogers is going to argue is that to be a self-actualized person, the real self and the imagined self have to be one and the same, okay? Now, the, the, this is where, where, where it gets a lot of confusion because does that mean that I have to become the superstar, all right? I like to think that, you know, that, that, that I can rap, which I can't. I'm totally horrible at it. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I thought, you know, I could do a rap career, let's say. Um, and if I, if I took on the notion to become an self-actualized person, I needed to become the best rapper in the world, I would fail miserably and become very miserable because that's not how I could do it. And that's not what Rogers meant. He didn't say that to become actualized, your real self has to become that imagined self, that person you think you ought to be. No. Uh, what, what Rogers uh, advocated for is a complete and total acceptance of the self. And what he meant by that is that uh, you accept all of your best qualities and everything good about yourself, but you also accept everything that is not good about yourself, and you admit to those. And through that admission, you can then work on it. Now, a lot of times we have a hard time with that because our inability to admit something is usually brought out through our prejudices. Usually our prejudices are there because we have something we can't admit to because there's something we don't like about ourselves. Okay? 
And so our real self and our imagined self become one and the same when we come to a complete and total acceptance for who we are as an individual. Okay? And I want you to think about that. That means that you exist without prejudice. Hence, when I said a self-actualized person, individuals like Martin Luther King are those kind of individuals, that is what I was meaning by that, is that's an individual who has come to completely accept themselves, therefore they can completely accept everyone else. Because that's when you're actually able to give someone unconditional positive regard. These are the kind of individuals who may disagree with um, someone who is a pedophile, but they're able to work with them, for example. Um, this is someone who is able to go into a conflict and is able to calm the room instantly down and work with both sides in a neutral way. Okay. So going back to the humanistic theory, so this is this I think is the best de de definition of what actualization is. Is it's when your real self and your imagined self is one and the same. And what Rogers found, and this is kind of an interesting, and even today, is the further apart one's real self is from their imagined self, the more dysfunction we see. So the more depression we see, the more anxiety we see, eating disorders all these types of disorders that deal with anxiety, depression, trauma, the further those things are apart, the more intense the symptomology. And what Rogers found is the closer you could bring those together, the symptoms became less and less and less. And so that's another interesting aspect of, of this. But again, what Rogers argued, and, and, and this becomes one of the other stereotypes of, of therapy, is it's the job of the therapist to bring out these answers. So this is where, if you ever saw a sitcom where the therapist just sits there and the person is talking and the therapist, uh-huh, uh-huh, tell me more, tell me, can you explain that more, uh-huh. And, and the client eventually says, well, what do you think about that? And the therapist says, I don't know, but what do you think about that? And they never give a really clear answer about that. That is humanistic theory. Because in this, the opinion of the therapist doesn't matter. What the, the only opinion that matters is a client and bringing the client to that ultimate answer that the client already has inside. That's pure humanistic theory. We will find when we get to, at the end of the semester, when we talk about different therapies, humanistic approach works wonderful in the beginning of the therapeutic approach, but then you have to put in different techniques in the end using more cognitive approaches in those to be effective. It's great for relationship building. It's great for other approaches, but it does have its limitations. But this idea of becoming a self-actualized person through uh, letting go of those things that uh, uh, you may never be through acceptance of who you are allows you to grow and develop because once you truly accept those things that are not so good for you, you can understand them and you can grow from them. 
and so that's a humanistic approach. And next we'll look at how our social world influences us.